Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, это Prevail, и ваш ведущий Грег Олег. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show today. Diane Francis is here. You can find her online, dianefrancis.com, D-I-A-N-E-F-R-A-N-C-I-S.com. She's an award-winning columnist, best-selling author, investigative journalist, speaker, television commentator. She's editor-at-large at Canada's National Post, a columnist for the American Interest, Atlantic Council's Ukraine Alert, Kiev Post. She also has a Substack because all the cool kids have Substacks now. She's the author of 10 books, including Merger of the Century, Why Canada and America Should Become One Country, which we're going to talk about, Who Owns Canada Now, Old Money, New Money, and the Future of Canadian Business, and Immigration, the Economic Case. She also has over 200,000 followers on the Twitter which is more than I have, although I'm not sure if we have to adjust Twitter followers if there's an exchange rate because she's Canadian. Really fascinating conversation. We talk about this proposed U.S.-Canada merger. We talk about Russia. We talk about Putin. We talk about Semyon Mogilevich. We talk about Bitcoin, lots of other stuff besides. Really interesting conversation, so stick around for that. Before we start today, I just want to send my condolences to Queen Elizabeth of England. This was a, a rough week for her. She lost her soulmate, man she loved deeply, who meant the world to her. And I just want to say, rest in power, DMX. We'll be right back with Diane Francis. Ladies and gentlemen, Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> I, I got no respect. No respect at all. Matt Gates tried to Venmo me $900. Matt Gates, oh, oh, don't get me wrong. Excellent boy, excellent boy. Now we know my leopards eat their young. That's Gates, G-A-E-T-Z, with a Z. Why does he spell it that way? Because his eighth grade girlfriend thinks it's cute. Not the girlfriend from eighth grade. His eighth grade girlfriend. <laughs> 
Not to be confused with the girlfriend who's a sophomore in high school. <laughs> oh, oh, Nestor. Nestor. What is this Nestor? You keep hearing about Nestor this, Nestor that. Is Nestor a person? Or is that an online dating app to meet high school girls? As part of the plea deal, Matt Gates plans to ask for an extension before he starts prison. He's got a date for the junior prom. And he's excited because she just got to brace herself. <laughs> I tell you, I tell you, I tell you, it's bad. It's bad. I saw Don Gates, his father, on the golf course alone. I said, hey, Whitey, where's your brat? That was Rodney Dangerfield. And now back to the show. Diane Francis, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Now, you and I know each other through Victor Rudd, who is kind of a geniusy guy. He's going to be on the podcast at some point to talk about Ukraine. And he told me, oh, I know this woman. She's really smart. She's well-versed in Ukraine. You should definitely talk to her, definitely have her on. And then you reached out to me, which was fortuitous. So I'm very happy to have you on the pod. But I go back and look through your work. And I see that Ukraine is only one of the, one of the vast array of things that you know a lot about. And there's a lot of overlap between what you're interested in and what I'm interested in, which is obviously Ukraine, Russia stuff, Putin stuff, organized crime, white collar crime, uh, these sort of things. But also, you've been writing a column in Canada for a long, long time. I, I would call you prolific. So and you now have a Substack, like all the best writers do. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So yep. you're you're yep. in Toronto. We have to plug that. Diane Francis Substack. Oh yes. <laughs> it, it's very good. And the first thing I want to ask you yes. is about one of the pieces you wrote on the Substack. There is a graphic, which I'm sure everyone listening to this has seen, where it's a map of the US and Canada, and it has all of Canada plus the east and west coast in blue, and that's called the United States of Canada. And then the the, the South and the central United States in red, and that's called Jesus land. Yes. And you're talking about that. But then I look and see that you have written a book called Berger in the, of the Century, in which you sort of talk about what would happen if the U.S. and Canada merged together. So you must have been blown away when you, when you saw this graphic, almost like stealing from, from your book idea. And it, at, at first blush, such a thing, you say, well, that would never happen. But my God, would we ever think that France and Germany would be in a union together at any point in European history? So to start, let's start there. Tell me a little bit about, about that. Okay. Well, it's my 10th book. And as you say, I'm quite eclectic. So four of my 10 books have been about white-collar crime and money laundering, fraud, stock fraud, that sort of thing. Uh, and I've written, um, I'm a Canadian writer, Canadian-based writer, but I'm American. And I follow things in America, and I've written for everybody, the Wall Street Journal, the, you know, all of them. And so I'm a keen student of everything going on in the U.S. and a keen student of everything going on in Canada. And it's always struck me that, and I immigrated from Chicago to Canada in 1966 when I was 19 years old because of the Vietnam War. Ah, okay. I married an immigrant, a British immigrant. He had a green card. And when there was conscription, when there was the draft in the U.S., uh, everybody who immigrated signed a piece of paper saying they knew that the day they landed, they had to register with the Selective Service Board and that they were going to be drafted if there was a need. So he knew that. It was all up front of his fine. 
And so he decided, you know what, not my war, not my country. It wasn't political. It was just, you know, smart. And and he said, I'm not going to go. So they reclassified him. He didn't have to desert. He didn't go in and flee. He didn't. He wasn't a draft dodger. We got immigration permission to go to Canada because his father was Canadian. And so he could bring in a spouse. That was me. And so we went to Toronto. And, you know, Canada was a great thing. Now, we're talking 1966. In 1966, Canada was like a little Britain. It was very parochial. It There were no fast food restaurants, no chains of any kind. It was fish and chip stores and orange parades on Irish Day, on Billy Day. And it was a bunch of Protestant Irish guys that ran the place and extremely close-minded and very royalist, loved their queen and all that jazz, and that was fine. And then it changed. At the same time, the country where I came from, the United States, in these many decades, has also changed hugely. And so I see a melding, a moving toward a central, some central value principles in both countries that didn't exist 50 years ago. And so the whole thesis of the book, Merger of the Century, was, and I wrote it, it came out in 2014, is that by this century, by the end of this century, these two companies will either economically be one country or a customs union, which means free movement of labor and so on, or they may even be a political entity like the common market, like, like the European Union. Right. And that these things will naturally gravitate in that direction. And then I looked at the cross-pollination, the number of Americans, particularly the Vietnam War. I mean, there was a couple of million of us that went to the U from the U.S. into Canada. And we ended up professors in the media, in business, influencing a lot of things in Canada. And vice versa, the entire population of Canada immigrated to the United States in the 20th century. Wow. From the First World War to the year 2000, the entire population of Canada moved to the U.S. Why? Because there were no jobs. It was a sleepy agricultural country. And there was nothing much going on. So the best and the brightest, the most you know, ambitious went down to New York, to Hollywood, to Silicon Valley, to Chicago. And so if you look at the American population, if you were to ask every American, this was what my research showed me, if they had a grandparent today, if they had a grandparent that was born in Canada, you're looking at about 30 to 35 million Americans who have... Wow. One grandparent in Canada, same thing. So that socioeconomic, and we marry together, we travel together. You know, we run the economy of Florida because we all go down there in the winter. You know, all of this cross-pollination is cr creating a sort of a continental personality, if you like. And it comes from the border down. And that's why when the British guy who did the Jesus land meme, which I picked up on, which was done in 2012 before my book was written, was so perfect. Because if you look at the presidential elections, the presidential cycles in the United States, going back 30 years, 
Okay, four out of five times, all of the states that touch the Canadian border or, or, touch, the, or touch the states that touch the Canadian border are liberal, are Democrat. Right. And so that is your influence, your liberal influence from Canada going south, okay? And so that's what I said, well, my goodness, the, you know, the biggest part of the United States, the richest part, the most populated part is, is becoming more and more, if you also poll that part of the United States, they're against capital punishment, they were in favor of legalization of marijuana. I mean, all the things are the same. They want public health care, Oh yeah. And yeah. this is why this is why it's very interesting. So what you may end up with, you may have end up with, who knows? I'm just playing here. As you say, who would have thought the European Union would have lasted? Yeah. Is I don't think anything is sacred. I think the way I see, and I've written a lot about this in my newsletter, the way the culture of the deep south is deepening into autocracy and racism to me may result in a semi-secession you may end up with three countries in north america four if you include mexico which is always going to be a separate country it's such a mess but you know what i mean so yeah i think there's something very interesting going on and nothing stays the same and then let's look at the influences. Canada now is as entrepreneurial, as enterprising, as 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 prosperous as the United States. And that we got Canadians got that from the American influence. Right. The, the, the film industry is great there between Vancouver and Toronto. Yeah, there's a lot of we, we like the same pop cultural things. There's a lot to be said for it. And I think people in, in this country who who are you know, younger than, I don't know, when was the last country admitted to the Union? 48? I mean, most people who are alive in the United States think of the map of the United States as being this very static thing, just like the 50 stars are a static thing. But historically, the map changes all the time. I mean, when Polk was president, we didn't have Texas, Arizona, New Mexico. He added all of that real estate. And that was in, what, in the 1830s, 1840s. So it's it's not that long ago that a lot of that land was part of Mexico. A lot of it was owned by Britain. So these things can change. I think if Trump won again, which he almost did, you would have seen a lot more Americans going to Canada for sure. But I'm worried a little bit about aspects of Canada. I think that from what I'm told, I, I have a, a, a reader uh, on Twitter. She goes by Amy Says, who, who lives in Canada and warns me about Alberta, that there's there's dark things afoot in Alberta and with the UCP and with Stephen Harper, and that there is this sort of, for want of a better word, MAGA contingent in Canada. Is that true? Should we be worried? Uh, no, no. The, 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 there are no Republicans in Canada. Let me just explain how. I am a commentator in Canada. I am a conservative commentator. I'm a Canadian conservative. Small c. Right. Okay. That, you know where that puts me in the U.S. spectrum? Left of the Democrats. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I know. We That's have, why I'm laughing. We, we have no Republicans. You have no socialists. We have socialists called the NDP, they call themselves. But we are a couple of notches to the left from the United States. But there are no Republicans. The Albertans 
are right-wing conservatives, but they would never give up universal health care. And by the way, they don't, they're, they're very restless and they're very upset about a lot of things. We have Quebec that's restless. Yeah. You know, we have Quebec and we have the West. Those are the areas of tension against the center. And you have the South. And that's the area of tension in your, to your center. So these are the things that are going on and, and both countries. And, you know, I think that if there was a big crisis, I think that you're going to see more of a interconnectedness on the supply chain side. The Already, I don't know if you're aware, but you consider now that the FBI is up here helping our cops and, and vice versa. They're also working on a strategy now, which I think is very smart. But think about the integration, the, the, the merger required to do this. They're, they're working on a one port, two countries system. So you land cargo in Valdez, Alaska, or Vancouver, and you will be cleared customs-wise, and you can just go to the U.S. without another clearance process. And you go to New Orleans or you go to L.A. and you can be cleared to go in Canada. So if you can merge all the customs and FBI and all that, that's what they're working on. And they may bring away on that. We are also know we our police know every American that's in our country. And your police know every Canadian that's in your country. We share those things. So what we're doing is we're working toward an open labor movement of people and goods market. That's the next step toward a common market. That and sounds it, good to me. And it sounds logical. Sounds. I mean, it's I, I live in upstate New York and it's not it's a five hour drive to Montreal. And yeah. it seems ridiculous that we can't just go there without, you know, we got to stop at the at the thing and present the the papers and all this stuff. It's ridiculous that that I, to mail something to Canada costs like a thousand dollars. It doesn't really, but it's 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 expensive relative to the the distance it's going to wind up going. So I think all of these things would be super helpful, and you know, just strengthen both countries ultimately economically. It's just a waste of time. I think we have a very good. I must say, I think we have a very good relationship now. I mean, obviously. You know, the United States elected a leader that nobody liked, including most Americans, as it turned out, Trump. Mm -hmm. Totally without credentials, you know, kind of a crazy person. We have a very bad prime minister right now. No credentials. He looks 18, he acts 12. He's a terrible leader. He's done a terrible job. And he only gets 33% of the popular vote because in the parliamentary system, our vote is so fragmented across five parties that you can become the prime minister with 33%. Terrible. So so we have we both have the same problems with our leaders. But apart from that, people get along great. People do business. They marry. They travel together. Right. They ski together. I mean, it's it's a terrific situation. And it has been for, you know, it's been building like this for some time. So it's really interesting. I never thought about it the way that you presented it analogous to the EU. You know, it just never occurred to me before that that a union like this would be a gradual process and would work. But I think well, you're right. I think there's there's no reason for it not to really. Here's another here's another pitch is that, you know, Canada, Canada needs the United States. Canada is essentially a, a, an autonomous economic region of the U.S. 
all our trade, all of the stuff we import, all the stuff we export, we're completely dependent on, on the United States. The United States has never tried to invade us or take us over, you know, and they're not going to do that. So, you know, we have to admit our dependency on one another too, because, you know, we provide a lot of things. But here's the other pitch that I usually joked with when I went on my book tour, because, you know, liberals in the U.S. love the idea of including Canada in the country. Sure. And here's why. You include Canada in the United States, there'll never be a Republican in the White House again. We'll get 39 million Democrats. Yeah. Everybody is a Democrat. If the union adopted the United States system, then we would have two senators from British Columbia and two senators from Ontario and two senators from Manitoba and so on and so forth. And maybe the two from Alberta might might find common cause. With, but that would still, the no, numbers would be good. No, they wouldn't. They're not good. Good. I, that, that makes me feel better because I've been I people are worried about this. They really are. And I'm glad to hear that, that I don't need to worry. Do you think that the parliamentarian system is better than our system here where it's sort of more winner take all and two parties? Or is it just one of those things where there's some advantages to each one? I think uh, our system is better. And I've written about this in American Interest. I did an uh, interesting piece in American Interest it's on the archive. You can go to American Interest. It's still online. We're not publishing anymore for the time being. But And I wrote about uh, Parliament versus presidential system. I talked about the pros and cons. And I, you know, I, I vote and I pay taxes in both countries. One of the things that I like about the parliamentary system is that it's more responsive to the public's yeah. wishes. It's sure. not as removed. We've also eliminated dark money no dark money. We have elections that last six weeks. We can get rid of a prime minister if the majority of votes vote him out. You can't get rid of a, a president in the United States. Forget no, we, 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 we're pretty sure that we can't. I think I think now the, 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 the results are in, and I don't know what a president would have to do to be gotten rid of, but which Inciting is, insurrection is pretty bad. And if we let that slide, I think we'll let just about anything slide. Exactly. So it's a pretty dangerous, you know, that's a pretty dangerous. So we can get rid of our guys. We have a very short election time. We don't spend $10 billion on our elections. What we do is we don't let third party advertising be involved in the election period. We do not allow polling in the last week of an election period. We do not have, as I said, dark money. We have campaign donation limits for unions, for corporations, for individuals. And for people that run election campaigns, because it's a big country strung out, your party, if it qualifies to run candidates, will be partially taxpayer supported so you can put your ideas forward. We don't have 30 people parties running, but we have five. OK, and they get this financial assistance. And that's true in Europe. So you have all the ideas represented. You have nobody with a huge monetary advantage. You have nobody who can be bribed. You have nobody who can, you know, just pummel the heck out of the airwaves for two years. We yeah. don't have this ridiculous primary process. And the other thing, too, is the prime minister doesn't run at large. He runs for his seat. 
he runs as the leader of a party. And so when he gets in, he's the guy who can control the votes. And so he gets things done. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense, too, because often it's, you know, what's going to happen here probably, and I hope that it doesn't, is that in two years at the midterm elections, you know, the, the other party often historically wins Congress during the midterm election. So whatever Biden's got to do, he's got to do it fast. He's got a short a short window of time to do it. And, yeah, and I, I also wrote my my last new my latest newsletter, which I which came out yesterday. It's called Jerry Meandering. Okay, yeah, it's a play, and there's a conspiracy, and the Republicans are well advanced in this conspiracy. They now have they have been targeting the state legislatures, which control the electoral process, which control how the map is drawn for congressional seats. Okay. And they've gerrymandered and they control their own seat maps. And so they now have control over 38 of the 50 states. And we see what they're doing in Georgia. We saw what they've been trying to do. And that's what they're going to do. And it looks like they're on track. They're going to win. They're going to take the House back in, in 2022 if the Democrats don't stop it because they poised to redistrict and grab the rest of the cookies. This is very dangerous because this this ends democracy. Yeah, yeah. No no pressure, but no, it it absolutely does. Not only that, but the composition of the Supreme Court, which only has nine people on it, six of the nine people were put there by this Leonard Leo group who inherently are there because deep down what they want is the same sort of oligarchy and more authoritarian system that the Republicans want. So it's very dangerous. Uh, it Can used to be that you could depend on the Supreme Court to wave this shit off. And I don't know now what's going to happen well, with these new people. You, you can't call yourself a rule of law country if your Supreme Court is appointed by politicians, okay? We yep. don't do that in Canada. They don't do that in Germany. They don't do that in Australia. They don't do that anywhere in the world except the United States. And you have parties appointing their proxies on a Supreme Court, which is supposed to be independent based on the rule of law and constitutionality. And that's why you've got, it's basically a corrupt system, in my opinion. It, it It's even more of a corrupt system now. What I want them to do, I want them to expand the court, which they talked about during the um, campaign. That was the Republicans tried to make that, you know, a campaign issue. Oh, Biden's going to pack the court. I certainly hope so. There's Thank nine. You. I want 81. How about 81? How about nine times nine? And then it, the more people that are there, the less likely it is that one somebody's going to be corrupt and bribable and everything else. It's, um, it's not just numerical. They have to be selected by independent legal experts that have no party affiliation. They have to be elected by non-political people. That's what they do in Canada. That's what they do in Britain. And that's what they do in Australia. That's not going to happen here. I mean, I don't know how we would ever change that, but expanding the court could happen. So that's, that's, that's as good as we're going to get. It's crazy that we sit around here and we worry about the health of one of the members of the Supreme Court, because if she dies, the whole world spins off its axis. That's not a comfortable feeling. Nor is it a comfortable feeling to feel joy when a, a bad justice dies, as one did fairly recently. 
So, okay, speaking of corrupt governments and systems, let's cross over to Europe now and talk a little bit about Putin. I've written a lot about him. Another of the comment uh, contributors to my site who goes by the pen name Moscow Never Sleeps, he's written a lot about Putin. We have a lot of Putin content on the site. What's happening now seems to be to me, I feel like Putin is is weaker than he was. I feel like a lot of the things that he's doing now are done out of weakness, whether that's Navalny and the crackdowns, whether whether it's him challenging Biden to a debate on TV or these ridiculous photo ops where he tries to look all tough and winds up looking like a teddy bear without a mask on. What What is your take on Putin? What Do you think he's long for the position? Well, I agree with you that he's weaker in terms of the things he's trying to do just ain't going to work. Mm-hmm. They're ineffective. But I think he's never been more dangerous and more powerful. He has okay. absolute control now over a nuclear arsenal and a country with 160 million people that are either drunk all the time or completely brainwashed. This is a very dangerous time in history. And I, I don't think we can underestimate him in terms of, I think he's far more dangerous than China because why? China has a Politburo of 2,000 people. And a, I mean, it's, he's, not, he's not an emperor. Putin is an emperor. He's actually pulled it off. He's the czar, yeah. He doesn't answer to it. And my piece, again, to plug my Substack newsletter, Vlad the Bad. Right. I'm a business writer. I mean, I know my numbers. This is the richest man in history. Yes, absolutely. Putin is the world's only trillionaire. He is the richest man in history. Because the guys, you know, the 60 guys on the Forbes list who are from Russia as billionaires, half or more of their fortunes are Vladimir's and they keep it. They're his, they're his proxies. Yes. This guy is the richest and the most dangerous and the most powerful person in the history of the world. And, you know, he is, he, he's only doing what he wants to do. And he's revanchist. We know if, if he, if he wanted to, if he finds an opening, He's going to nibble away at Ukraine. He's going to nibble away at Georgia. He's going to nibble away at Belarus. He's already got that one. You know, this, this is, and, and he's got nukes. I mean, Kazakhstan, I'd be nervous. And, you know, the only thing that we have going for us is that he, he portrays himself as a very fit guy, that, but he's not fit. We hear reports about health concerns. Parkinson's, yeah. no, he can't live forever. Right. Thank but, but I've heard Craig Unger, who wrote American Compromise, um, his source on that, his, one of his sources, his primary source is a, is a man named Yuri Svets, who was a KGB uh, station chief who defected decades ago. And he thinks that Putin is going to be forced out, but that the people that replace him are going to be worse because they're going to be hardcore FSB you know, the, the people responsible for the apartment bombings and, and, and this and that. It won't even try to play nice. Um, well, yeah, that. he's going he's gonna to hand over the keys of a nuclear arsenal that's richer than any other entity or state nation state on the planet. Of course, it's going to be a problem. Even if there's a, a, a troika of them or, 
or 2,000 in their parliament. That Russia is a problem. I mean, it's it's they're damaged people. They've never had a decent leadership ever. Yeah, yeah. And the closest you come is, I don't know, Catherine, and that's that was faked anyway. They were all I, serfs. They were all they were all yeah. slaves. Yeah. No, 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 no. They were slaves. They've been slaves until the revolution. Then they became communist, abused by the communist system. You know, squeal on your mother and father if they're talking badly, and and send them to a gulag. I mean, they have been there. I I used an anecdote in that column that I got from a entrepreneur from Canada. He was Russian. He went back and he opened a couple of computer stores in 1992, and he fled. He said they don't need capitalism; they need a psychiatrist on every corner. (laughs) He said they steal, they lie, they've been abused. He says they have all the symptomology of abused children. They lie, they steal, they don't trust anybody, and they're not trustworthy. He said they have been damaged, and I think that's fair. I know that's generalization, but how else do you explain 160 million people who have had a pretty good, a, a better education than a lot of Americans who are still brainwashed and still put up with this? It's yeah. shocking. Well, there are the there are the the protests in the street by the young people and and, and that sort of thing and talk of, and it's you know it's interesting to see sometimes things feel like they're never going to change and then suddenly they change and nobody sees it coming. I'm not entirely sold that that's what's going to happen there, but if something happens to Navalny now, which it looks like something's going to happen to him, they're killing him. Yeah, in Casablanca. There's the scene where the the Major Strauss is talking to Victor Laszlo, and Laszlo gives a speech like, "If you if I give you the names of the people in this place and this place, more will grow where I where they were, and you'll never be defeated." And he says, "Yes, they're all replaceable, but you're the one who cannot be replaced." So, is is Navalny Victor Laszlo who cannot be replaced, or will there be other people like him? And if so, who might those people be? And I should say, th- this is something that was this is a question that. Uh, Matthew Fossa, who wrote the theme song for my podcast and is a friend of mine, asked me to ask you. So who replaces Navalny? Well, there are people in 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 the movement uh, that will do so. Remember, Navalny replaced Nemtsov, who right. replaced Kasparov. And Kasparov was smart and got out of Dodge City. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nemtsov was murdered in front of the world and the Kremlin. And Navalny is going to die a slow, horrible death in a prison. Um, you know, this this is this is so Russian. It's suicidal. It's it's brave. It's it's superhuman, but it's so predictable. You cannot just have someone at the top who's going to lead the whole thing out into a more enlightened society. This is a very damaged society. I'm afraid. And yeah. all the rest of the world can do is contain it. How do we contain it? Because I, I'm i a big fan. You've written about money laundering and, and stuff like that. And I want to talk about Mogilevich in a, in a minute. Does it work to just take their money to put them on these sanctions lists? Because it seems to me that, yes, the oligarchs are very wealthy. Yes, so is Putin. But if he's stuck in Russia, if they can't bring the wealth outside of the country... What good is it in a sense? I mean, how many dachas can you buy on the Black Sea? You know, every once in a while you want to go to Paris or 
Monte Carlo or something and have some fun. Does that work? It would work, but it hasn't worked yet because the world has to get their act together. Yeah. You cannot have, you know, very good anti-money laundering laws in one jurisdiction when another 200 don't. There's yeah. always somewhere to park that dough. There's always a bank, a dirty bank, a tax haven, a corrupt state, you know, like Delaware or wherever where I can have a hidden... <laughs> No, seriously. It's a becoming hidden, South Dakota is becoming the thing now. It's going to be hidden, South Dakota. A hidden company. If we can't do it on an international scale, it never stops. Period. Yeah. Yeah. So good luck. <laughs> I'm working on it. Did you hear what happened on the last narrative podcast? All democracy to end. They don't think it works. They're done with it. And you know who are their allies? The Cokes, the Mercers. The Murdochs. I've seen this movie before. I I watched this in South Africa. I know I know how it plays out. I've got news for the GOP. Yeah. If they think any company is going to invest in Georgia, or if they think any foreign nation is going to invest in Georgia, or if they think they can hold any international event in Georgia or international sports event in Georgia, they are wrong. Can I just say, as mm. as delightful as it was for everybody to be like, we're going to cater it and this and that. That's insane. It's insane that we that we have to even think in those terms. Mm-hmm. We don't have to cater it. These people should be arrested long before November. End of discussion. I, I, I don't want people to go to Georgia with cake. Narrative featuring the friends you already know. Look for new podcasts every Thursday and Sunday, wherever you get your podcasts. Mogilevich is in Moscow. Clearly, there is coordination between the Russian mafia, which is as I've written, more specter than Goodfellas. It's it, it's really transnational organized crime is this massive thing that the underworld economy, by some estimates, would be, if it was a country, would be third or fourth largest economy on the planet, something like that. It's enormous and vast. What relationship does Mogilevich and the, and the mobsters, the actual criminal people, have with Putin? How would you describe it? I think he's his whisperer. Uh, he was given, uh, uh, he's a fugitive, and he yeah. was given exile and privileges in Moscow. At first, when he went there, he was jailed. And then and then there was a little, you know, discussion as to how useful he could be and so on. <laughs> or could he be more useful as a bargaining chip with the people that wanted him, like the FBI and so on? And I think they settled for the fact that, you know what, he's a really good crook. He's really smart. He's ruthless. He's Ukrainian, by the way. Yep. But, you know, he, I think he's just a, a, an advisor, and I think he kind of taught Putin and, and some of his group how to set up things to shake down, to extort, and money laundering, and that sort of thing. By the way, getting back to the crackdown and the sanctions, yeah. there is one path to really hurting them. Okay. It is if the United States and Britain get their act together. Oh, Britain's a f- fucking mess. Sorry, my French, but it's called London Grad for a reason. They park their money yeah. in London, and the London banks run it through their gauntlet of banks in the Caribbean, and that's where that stuff goes. And then it's washed, and then they can go and spend it wherever they want. They're also able to get into the United States. The Kolomoisky case I've written about 
recently involving Cleveland and Tennessee and stuff. He stole money from a bank in Ukraine and he invested it in lousy real estate in small towns and cities in the United States. And they all went bankrupt on purpose. It was bankruptcy fraud as well. And, and so we've got to stop their access. We've got to shut them out of the United States and, and the UK because that's where they like to park their stuff. Because yeah. it's the safest and the best. And why do they like it? The great irony? Because we have the rule of law. Right. They yeah. can hide their dirty money safely right. and be it, protected from having it stolen from them because we give them the rule of law to protect their dirty money. Yep. So Absolutely. If the two of them alone got together and said, okay, enough already. We're stopping this and stopped it. And then said, okay, St. Bart's, Bahamas, Turks and Caicos. Jersey. Don't forget Jersey. No visas, no foreign aid. And we're sanctioning every one of your leaders to you stop doing this. Yeah, yeah. And then you got it. It's really only two countries. And I see a critical mass of understanding in the U.S. The NDAA is a good start. It's not enacted yet. Uh, the fact that a, a money launderer was in the White House has also become a lesson. Yeah. And Britain now is quite ashamed of what, what's happening there. So that is a the shortcut and the only way to stop it. And that would do a huge amount of good. Well, that I think that I think is possible. I, I think I think certainly in the United States we can clean it up. I think part of the reason I want to do this podcast and part of the the effort that I'm making in my writing is to crystallize why this stuff is bad, why money laundering and tax havens and all this is bad. We had, um, and, and you're in Canada, you know, Stuart Savray, who uh, was a senator in Jersey that wound up, he tried to blow the whistle on, on the child abuse things that were happening there and got in, in a world of trouble. He was on the podcast recently and he said, the rest of the civilized world laughs at the United States that you can't get your act together to have universal health care. I mean, it's, a, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. But if we take the money and add the money that's being hidden in these tax shelters and tax havens, not just the illegal money, but the, the corporate money from Apple and these big corporations that just incorporate offshore and tax it the way that it's supposed to be taxed as part of the tax basis, there's plenty of money to do all these things. So it's infuriating, but I think it, it's hard for people to understand because it's abstract. It's not It's not as visceral as I broke into his house and took a $100 bill out of his uh, That's right. you know, wallet. It's invisible. It yes. Really yes, exactly. And the exactly. other one, and the way that the UK and, and the United States cracks down is you crack down on the enablers. We got to get our lawyers under control. It's yeah. the lawyers that do this. The banks are good now. Because we have all kinds of constraints on the banks. It's mm-hmm. the bloody lawyers. And we've got to get the lawyers to, to police themselves. Britain has already got its head around it. Australia's doing that. Japan is doing that. The United States, the legal legal profession is, you know, just debating this to death. They're very concerned about it because of this, this priceless thing they call client confidentiality. Mm. What they do now, though, what they do in Australia, and in, and this is what we need, that if a lawyer or a professional broker or accountant or real estate broker 
thinks that they have a suspicious client doing a suspicious transaction, they are obliged to go to the authorities. That's what banks have to do. Obliged. Yeah. And if you don't do that and that person's caught and they were the lawyer, they're going to go the slammer too. Yeah. That's it. Some of the stuff is, is pretty simple, but you look at, I mean, Deutsche Bank over the course of, I think it was, I, I'm, I'm going to botch the figures a little bit. They were fined over 10 years, $11 billion for various, yeah. you know, tricks that they pulled. And it's like, if they're willing to eat that amount of money in fines, how much money are they making? You know, it's, it's really. It was a cost of doing business. They made hundreds of billions. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a staggering kind of thing. The other thing is that I feel like in this country, we sort of admire people that get around the tax man. There's this kind of cool factor about it. When Trump was running in 16, in one of the debates, they asked about his taxes and he was like, no, no, I, I just went to the account and I got out of paying it. That's what you do. You know, it was good business. And he, he said it. I think that's one of the few honest statements he ever made. But that's something that Americans look at and say, yeah, he's a good businessman. He knows how to do that. And it's like, no, dummy, he's stealing from us when he does that. That's the money that he isn't paying has to come from somewhere. And it comes from those of us who don't have all this money coming in and can't afford the really great semi-shady accountants, you know, we have to, we have to fight that war too. This, this idea that money laundering is cool somehow, or some kind of. Well, I think, I think also, you know, the public needs to be educated. There's a world of difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion. Tax evasion is a crime. Tax avoidance is something that actually you prudently have to do if you're a corporation, I would argue as a business writer. So it, so it behooves the, the politicians to make sure the avoidance isn't obscene. And of course, with Republicans, it is obscene. Right. And so that's what you have to do. And, you know, it's, it's theft. It's theft. Yeah. And the difference between civilization and the jungle is taxation. And the problem in the <laughs> United States, I grew up there, is that, you know, it's a country that was started by guys who threw the tea in the harbor because they didn't want to pay taxes. <laughs> and that's, that's the romance and the, the patriotic mythology about it. If we don't pay taxes, we can't get anybody to answer our 911 calls. Our kids can't get educated. Our streets aren't safe. Our lights don't work. You know, I mean, come on, guys. And so I think the United States is the least taxed of all the developed nations and all that has to happen, all, <laughs> listen to me, <laughs> if you guys paid a, a higher gasoline tax than you do, you would have Medicare, no problem. That's yeah. all. This is simple. Well, you could also you could also legalize marijuana on a federal level and tax it. You could do yeah, that okay. too. Exactly. It, you, it, it, in the United exactly. States, the entire, the entire federal government of the United States was funded largely by excise taxes on alcohol until prohibition. That's how much, you know, th there are ways to do this. It's not, it's not impossible. And I, and I would argue if you want to fix Mexico, and I've also written about this, the United States has to legalize hard drugs. And those people are not addicts. They're not immoral. They are mentally ill or they have a health problem. 
And the addict in a court in Canada or in Europe is looked upon, yes, they may have committed a crime, but they're looked upon as a health issue. Yeah. And they're under doctor's treatment. They may go to jail, but they're under doctor's treatment to get methadone if they're heroin. And so we don't have the problem the United States has. And Mexico will continue to be ruined by America's failure to deal with its drug problem and to not legalize. You legalize cocaine and heroin, not legalize, but decriminalize it. Right, right. Anybody caught with too much of it is treated in under the medical system as opposed to the, under the punishment system, the criminal system. Then, you know, Mexico can fix itself. Mexico is doomed because of the United States appetite for drugs. Doomed. Will never get better. And your border will never get better. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize that, that immigration and, and the, the drug trade go hand in hand. I mean, it's you can't have you can't fix one without fixing the other, basically. OK, so we're we're coming up on that. I have I have I was it's funny because I was going to have you on and talk about Ukraine. We haven't talked about it at all. But I want to this got got off into an interesting place. So I want to stay with where we are. This was my last question anyway. So sure. what do you feel? What do you think about Bitcoin? Because I don't know about it. I've been reading about it a little bit, and I think I understand better now what it is. And it's starting to be a thing where more, you see it like at ATM machines now, and there's the, uh, what is it called? Maslow's or whatever it is, Metcalf's law, where it's too, it's getting to be so big that it has to sustain itself. And I kind of understand the underpinnings. On the other hand, having this cashless system external from the government is an easy way to launder money and stuff like that. So what's your take on it? Most of the Bitcoin is bought by uh, criminal organizations. That's that's proven. That's a given. So a lot of people at the edges playing the game, and they've done very well. They've done very well because it keeps going up and up. And now it's got some, uh, it's got some uh, status. Elon Musk, his endorsement, okay, and that kind of thing. Here, I, I wrote a, again. I wrote a Substack piece about it, and then and it was titled Bitcoin or Bitcoin or Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. So the bottom line is I'm a business writer and I'm, I'm an investor. And the bottom line for me is that the, some of these people on Wall Street are saying, well, it's a store of value as good as gold. Well, it's not as good as gold. And let me tell you why. I was also on two gold mining companies that were listed on the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs> I know about gold. There's only so much gold. Yep. It's hugely expensive to find and it's hugely expensive to mine on an economic basis. So the value just sort of stays stable and so on. So everybody agrees and has done throughout history. Gold is the place when you don't believe the money that's around or the currencies around, you put it in gold and everybody pretty much agrees that the price is the price. The difference with Bitcoin is that there is nothing controlling the amount of Bitcoin. Now, the Bitcoin people will tell you that it takes a long time to make a Bitcoin. Yeah. All right. And that there's only 22 million out there that will ever be allowed. And I say, oh, who says? And they say it's because once they get to the, I said, so once they make the 22 millionth coin, they can't make another one. How does that work? They say, well, it's baked into the algorithms. Mm -hmm. This is the tulip mania. 
This is nonsense. <laughs> there is no reason to believe that there is a finite number of Bitcoin. If I were convinced there was a finite number of Bitcoin and nobody could make new ones, people I don't know are making new ones. If I was convinced, then I'd say, okay, it goes up in value based on supply and demand. Okay, let's just say, this is nonsense. This is going to end in tears. It's going to end in tears. It's going to go down. Then it's going to go up. And everybody's going to say terrific. And then it'll go down. I mean, there is no intrinsic value to a Bitcoin, period. It's what the last guy paid for it. That's the value. Isn't that true? I'm, and I, I don't disagree with you. I'm just playing devil's advocate. I mean, isn't that also true in a sense of currency? There's nothing underpinning uh, currency oh, in the, other than the faith, good faith in the United States government, which is not good nothing. Faith in the United States government, a gold reserve, the largest economy the world has ever known in history. And that's important because a government that has the largest economy ever known in history can tax it. Right. There's your stability. There's your bankrolling. There's your backing. So whatever paper they, they print, they can back because they have the power to tax. And they tax a lot. You know that. Yeah. And, but as, as you point out, and this is, I wrote this down, the difference between civilization and the jungle is taxation. Did you just make that up now? No. I didn't think so. That's a great line. I like that. It's absolutely true. And I wish people would get that. I wish people who just cavalierly, uh, you know, cheat on their taxes and that sort of thing. You, you, it's just not right. No, it's antisocial. My, my line is an offshoot of William Brandeis's, the former Supreme Court justice. And his line is written in granite, etched in granite on the IRS building in Washington. <laughs> and the line is, I think the direct quote, I may not get it exactly, it's Brandeis, was taxation is the price for, you pay for civilization. Okay. I think I kind of like yours better. Sorry, Brandeis. Uh, <laughs> I think you improved it. So this has been really fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. We can find you. It's, it's diannefrancis.com. That's your website. And you have a Substack, the same name. And what's your Twitter handle? At diannefrancis1. Francis one Okay. D-I-A-N-E. F-R-A-N-C-I-S. The problem with my names is there are many spellings. So, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. If it's a last name, Francis, you get the E-S if it's, if it's a first name and a woman, but not so much as a last name. But yes, D-I-A-N-E-F-R-A-N-C-I-S dot com. Or is it dot C-A because you're in Canada? No, com. It is dot com. Okay, good. Um, and I'll put a link on the on the page for this so everyone knows where to find you. Excellent. Thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sofia Tereshenko provided the Russian voiceover. Thanks to Stephanie St. John for the narration. Thanks to Allison Gill, Jason Smith, Mackenzie Mazell, and everyone else involved with producing this podcast. Please subscribe to the Prevail website. Visit gregoliar.com. That's G-R-E-G-O-L-E-A-R.com. Until next time, we shall prevail.
HW.